page three in yours, in lesson one. We want to finish off lesson one and hopefully finish lesson two today. So we have a lot to cover. And our class is titled Parenting with Purpose. So as we look at this issue, this all-important issue of parenting, as suggested in the title, we want to see the purpose for which God has given the family and then in turn the purpose for which he has given us our children so that we can then back off from that purpose and create a plan for how to rear our children at various stages of their upbringing. So I maintain that one of the great mistakes that people make in every endeavor is to fail to ask the question, why am I doing this? What's the purpose for this? And so there are so many things that we simply do, we simply engage in because it's the right thing to do, because we find ourselves in it, because other people are doing it. But we don't ask the question, why am I doing this? What's, what's it for? And so the title, Parenting with Purpose, is designed to suggest that we need to know the purpose for which God has given us our families and our children, and in turn then, that will allow us to look at our children at the various stages through which they grow and determine a plan to get them where they need to go. But you'll never get them where they need to go unless you first think about where it is they're supposed to be going. What is the, what is the purpose? And that's the reason for the title. And so in our first lesson, we asked the question, what is a family? Uh, we, after looking at a number of pressures and issues that make it difficult in our day to be a parent, and I said last week, and I think many of you agree, that it is more difficult today to raise a parent in 2000, to raise a child as a parent in 2010 America because the culture is not working with you. Very often they're working against you. There was a day when the culture was working with you in your endeavor as a Christian parent. Today that's not the case. So it makes it extremely, extremely difficult. And so we saw some cultural shifts and some economic shifts that have created this, uh, created this pressure on families. And then we asked the question, what is the family? And we began looking at the fact that the family is to be three things. It is to be first a learning community, and then a sociological community, and then a redemptive community. And we left off, I believe, on page three for you, looking at the fact that the family is to be a, a learning community. Is that on page three for you? What page is it on? Page two? Okay. The family is to be a learning community. And then, as we explain what we mean by the family being a learning community, we're looking at the fact that our children are three things, that they are revelation receivers, that they are interpreters, and they are worshipers. And so I would like to flesh that out and, uh, and then finish lesson one and then move on to lesson two as quickly as we can. Okay? So the first thing a family is to be is a learning community. Community. And the reason it's to be a learning community is because it is in the family that the stuff of life takes place. That we are forced together with people who, with children that we did not choose. Did you ever consider that? I chose to have children, perhaps, but I didn't choose this child. And the more you get to know this child, the more you realize, I really did not choose this child, I'm telling you. And if your child has siblings, then they are in relationship with people they didn't choose either. And they are forced in that situation 
to learn about themselves, about others, and it reveals things about themselves. And so the family is this learning community where we learn things about ourselves in the context of community with people that we didn't choose. And it reveals things, sometimes ugly things, about our hearts and our selfishness and self-centeredness and all of that that come out in the context of family. So family is God's primary learning community, and that's, and that's why, because life takes place there. And secondly, I pointed out to you last week, God sweats the small stuff. Contrary to what many of us think about God, he is not simply interested in the big things of your life. He's interested in those. But many of us think that God only peeks into our lives at certain times. A birth is a really important time for God to take a peek and just kind of get involved. And God's blessed you with a baby, and we have big celebrations and showers and congratulations, and, and it's all beautiful, it's all wonderful, and God cares about that. But God cares about what goes on in the heart of that child, not only the moment that child is birthed, but two weeks and two months and two years and 20 years. And everything in between. God sweats the small stuff. It's not just the birth and it's not just the first day at kindergarten or the first day of high school or the driver's license or the graduation or the first prom, college, marriage. It, all those are highlights. We think that's where and we God kind of plugs in and we kind of plug into God. But hear this. Every day when you wake up, God cares about what's going on in your heart and in the heart of your child. God sweats the small stuff. So the family is this learning community where relatively small stuff is taking place, but all the time and all the while it's revealing things about ourselves and about our conception of God and about our conception of others. And if our children are going to learn in that learning community the way they should, then you've got to have solidly understood yourself these three things that we have for you. First, that our children are made to be revelation receivers. Your child, like you, is made in the image of God. And among a number of things that that means, it means that you and your child are made to communicate that you're made to communicate to others and you're made to receive communication from others. And the most important communication that you were made to receive and your child was made to receive is communication from God. And so that's what we mean when we say children are made to be revelation receivers, just like you are. They were made innately, naturally, to receive communication from God. We use the fancy word revelation. It simply means this. Revelation means to reveal, to expose, to make known. And so children are to be receivers of what God makes known. And they are born with the ability to do that. And so the first thing you need to understand as you engage in your child's primary teacher in this primary learning community that is the family is that you and your children were each made to be revelation receivers from God. And so he makes known to us information about who we are and who he is and what his purposes for us are. He's made that known. He has told us that. And he made our kids to be receivers of that information. And so God makes the first man, Adam, in his image. And the first woman, Eve, in his image. And he makes them with this natural ability to receive communication from him. I left off last week saying, how do we know that God made him with this natural ability? Because 
You notice, if you go to Genesis chapter 1, and I encourage you to do that, Genesis chapter 1 tells you about the six days of creation, and on the first day God created, and the evening and the morning were the first day, and there's a cadence to this. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let the light be separated from the darkness, and the greater light rule the day, and the lesser light rule the night. And you'll notice a, a, a cadence to this whole thing, where God is speaking and stuff is happening. But nobody else speaks. There's nobody else to speak. The animals are created. They don't speak. But then you come to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, and you have a different kind of creature being made. You have one being made different than all the rest, one being made in God's image. And God does not just speak a powerful word and things come out. God speaks, now get this, God speaks to them. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and God says to them, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and cultivate the garden. He gives them specific instructions about what he wants from them, what they are to do. He gives them, you'll recall, specific instructions about one thing they're not to do. Of all of the trees in the midst of the garden, you may freely eat. But of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, you may not eat. And in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now notice, God is giving specific information to this first man, this first woman. And nowhere in Scripture do you find them saying, uh, Eve, do you have any idea who this dude is? I mean, it's you and me. Uh, we know how to talk to each other. I don't even know how that happens, as a matter of fact. And you understand what I'm saying, but we know how to talk to each other. And there's this third voice coming at us, and they don't wonder at all where it came from. Do you know why they don't wonder? Because they were made to receive it. And the reason they're able to communicate freely and intimately with one another is because they were made to do that. They didn't have to learn to talk because they were made to communicate and made to receive communication from and to one another and from and to God. The first man, the first woman were made to be revelation receivers. And God communes with them and he talks with them. And all is well as long as they do what God has told them to do. But you know the story. Early on, they disobey. And of the tree in the midst of the garden that they were not to eat, they did and in that day you will surely die. They live physically after that, but they die that day spiritually, the Bible tells us. Because death means separation. Physical death is the separation of the spirit from the body. Spiritual death is the separation of the individual from God. And our first parents died spiritually the day that they disobeyed God. And as a result now of this free communication that they had, and for which they were made in the image of God, now that communication is distorted. And it's limited. They're removed from the garden, you may remember. And God separates them from this garden paradise. He places some angels with flashing swords in front of the entrance to the garden so that they won't be able to get to another special tree in there, the tree of eternal life. Because if they eat of that, they live forever. And if they eat of that and live forever in the condition they're in, they'll be in big trouble. And so God graciously keeps them away from that. 
and prepares a plan to redeem them, make right what has gone wrong in his otherwise good world. So now they're, they're banished from the garden. Now, here's what I want you to get out of all that. Do you know how that all happened? God was the first one to speak. He was, really, he was the only voice that they knew. And they followed his voice until, and this is important, the entrance of a foreign voice. The entrance of a different voice. And Genesis chapter 3 says that the serpent said to the woman, and just you could skip over that real quick, but just that line, and the serpent said to the woman, a big change has taken place because now they have a rival voice someone else to listen to. And the question is, are they going to follow now the voice of God whose revelation they were made to receive? Are they going to follow the voice of this contrary being, the serpent that we know as Satan, the devil? And you know the story. And the woman said to the serpent, and this dialogue goes back and forth, and they end up following the voice of the, the serpent rather than the voice of their creator. And that's what caused this calamity then to come upon them and upon their progeny. Now, this begins to give us a clue into our task as parents then. Our children are made in the image of God. They have the capacity to receive revelation from God. But we now have the entrance of this contrary voice. And we now have, in 2010, these many millennia later, what I call a thousand megaphones through whom the other voice speaks. And so now you still have the voice speaking, but is speaking with accomplices all over the place. Children of our father Adam, who are tainted by the sin that Adam brought into God's good world, born that way still with the ability to communicate, still made in the image of God, but now that image is distorted according to the Word of God. And part of our task as parents now is to see these children as revelation receivers, but get this, they're now getting revelation from other people and other places and other voices. And so part of what you have to do and what I have to do in God's learning community is to sort through those voices, to help our children to see the true from the false, the good from the bad. At one time, there was only the good voice, and now there are the voices, contrary to the first voice that our first parents heard. And so in a day of media and technology, the means by which you and your children are bombarded are legion, and they are daunting. And if we were left to that, if we were just left to all of the stuff we're bombarded with in this child, this precious child made in the image of God has now come into, into our care. And yet we're bombarded with all of this. And this child's going to grow and hear these voices. And it would be hopeless if that's all we had. But thanks be to God, he did not stop speaking after the serpent spoke. He continued to talk. He continued to tell you, here's the solution to the problem you've created. It's a problem, to be sure. It's a huge problem. It affects every facet of your life and your children's lives. But it can be fixed 
And I, a gracious God, am engaged in redeeming, making right what has gone wrong in your life and in the lives of your children. And so the rest of the Bible is about how God has endeavored to fix that. And so our children are revelation receivers. And God has spoken in the beginning. He continues to speak. But there's a contrary and rival voice with many megaphones that is speaking as well. Now, you can do this in the life of your child because you were made to be a revelation receiver. You have the revelation that he's given in the form of a, of a book. Your child was made to be a revelation receiver. And further, get this, your child was made in the image of God with a spiritual sensitivity. As you begin to teach your child the word of God, there is an innate spiritual sensitivity to that. They're born sinners, children of Adam and Eve. But they have a knowledge of God as well, the Bible teaches. Innate, naturally. Romans chapter 1 teaches that very thing, that people know God, but because of their sin, they do not naturally glorify Him as God and serve Him as God. But when you start to talk to your child about God, guess what? They'll know who you're talking about. How? They were made by Him. Now, if you wait a long time to start talking to your child about God, and all the other voices have told him in academia that there is no God, that the world came into existence not through the creative activity of God, but through a big bang and you oozed out of the slime and all of the stuff. If you wait for that, now your child's going to have some questions about that. But the truth of the matter is, most of the time, the child, or in many families, the child is the first one to bring up God. So, Mom, tell me about God. And many moms go, where do you get this God stuff? This child knows he didn't just get here. In fact, we have many families who come to church. You know why the first time they decided to come to church? Because a kid brought up God. And it occurred to the parent, holy cow, she's right. The child is right. We've got to teach this kid something about God. So when you talk to your child about God... Or very often, they talk to you first about God. They do that because they want to know, where did I come from? They, are, they have a spiritual sensitivity. And they will often ask the question, why? And if you're going to do them right by educating them as a revelation receiver, your answer is going to need to increasingly be when they ask the question, why? Because this is what the Lord our God has said. This is what God says. Not just I say so, but God has said so. Now, why will the kid ask why? A lot. And they do. Do your kids ask why? All the time. Why? Because of the second thing. They were made to be revelation receivers, but here's the second thing. They were made to be interpreters. They want to know why. God made us to learn discursively. Sound it out. But here's what it means. God made us to learn in portions. That we learn one concept and then we learn another concept that builds on that concept. We don't learn it all at once. We learn just, that's what I mean by learning discursively. And God made us to do that. And, he's, and our children do that. And so you teach them principles and you teach them concepts and then you teach them other principles and concepts that build 
upon that. And as they're doing that, all the while, they were made to be interpreters, and they're asking, why? And your child, then, is innately going to be this interpreter of his or her world. But here's the thing, friends, with the contrary voice and the distortion of the otherwise good world that God has made, our children will either interpret it rightly or wrongly. They can and will interpret it wrongly if they do not have God's revelation given to them. If God's interpretation is not instilled in them, they will interpret their world incorrectly. If left to themselves, they'll interpret it wrongly because all they have is the media and the myriad of voices emanating from the original distorting voice in the garden. I said to you last week, you will, and your child will, either consciously adopt your view of the world from Scripture or you will unconsciously absorb it from the culture. So the kid that is left to his or herself with a parent who makes the, and I'm not trying to be unkind, but the just absolutely foolish mistake of saying, I want them to make their own decisions. The parent who leaves that child to his or herself is guaranteeing that that child will go in a direction other than the direction God has made for them. You see, sin now requires intervention. If we were still in the garden without sin, kids would just live happily ever after. But we ain't in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. And because of that, it requires intervention. Intervention of the, the Word of God and the grace of God channeled through parents who take that responsibility seriously and do not leave children to interpret their world for themselves, but rather aid them in interpreting it through the lens of God's perspective. Children interpret their world all the time. So a guy tells a story of this kid being in the backyard with his brothers and sisters, and he is swinging this rake handle back and forth like a samurai or a baseball batter. And one of his siblings, of course, comes running, and he pops him in the head. And so the kid is bleeding and laying there, bleeding profusely, and the other children did what all children would do in that situation. They are just screaming crazy running around, circles, screaming, he's dead, he's going to die. One of them finally runs in the house. Unfortunately, mom is not home because mom is the only one who really knows how to fix anything in any house. I happen to know this. But mom is not home and it's dad. And the dad who is there is a guy like me. One, he's a guy like me who's basically clueless. But, but the other thing is he's a guy like me in that his education is in seminary. And he has a doctorate called a doctor of ministry. I've got to finish a paper to have this doctor of ministry degree he's talking about. So he has the title doctor. And these kids, his kids, hear him called doctor. So they run in to get dad and they're interpreting their world. You know, there's a death on our hands. And we go in and we get dad and dad comes out and dad is doing whatever he can. He's just a rag on the kid's head. He's trying to figure it out. He's wishing mom was here. But he hears his child laying there bleeding saying, I am so glad my dad's a doctor. Now he's interpreting, isn't he? His world. 
He's interpreting what his dad does and his dad's abilities. And he's interpreted it wrong. And if left to that, of course, that could be, that could be devastating and, and even dangerous. I'll give you another example from my, my girls, Laney and Annie. You saw a picture of them last week, 15 and 12. Everything I say about my daughters stays in this room. You hear me? But my, da- my, my daughters, particularly my oldest daughter, has struggled for years with fear, fear in general, but fear in particular of the weather. And I don't know where she got this, but she's fearful of the weather. And she always wants to know to this day, when we go to school in the morning, she wants to know what the weather report's going to be. And she will ask me, and then when her younger sister hears her ask, well, then she gets scared as well, and there's a storm coming. And then here's the question I get. Daddy, is there going to be a tornado? And I say, no. Now, I, don't, I really don't know for sure, but I, you know, I'm pretty sure. So I say, no. And then they say, what do they say? Promise? Now, what are they doing? They're interpreting their world. Dad and mom know a lot of stuff. Dad and mom are these good influences in our world, and they do good stuff for us. And so anything that's going on in my life, I can ask dad about, including natural disasters. Is a natural disaster going to occur today in this place? And the truth of the matter is we have had to teach them that they're misinterpreting that, that there's only one who knows that. And the truth is daddy doesn't know. I can tell you what daddy thinks about that. But I want you to see, and this is a teachable moment for my child, I want you to see, Laney, that your protection does not ultimately come from me, but it comes from your God. And so I want you, as you learn to not be fearful, to not be dependent on us, but to learn to depend on the protection of God. And she's learning that. And she's not there, just like I'm not there with all sorts of stuff. We learn discursively, and we all have issues that we need to have interpreted for us. But our children were made to be interpreters. They were made, thirdly, to be worshipers. Your children were made, and they do, and they will worship. And they don't worship because my family goes to church, or they don't fail to worship because my family doesn't go to church. If you haven't been attending a church until now, you have been worshiping and your children have been worshiping nonetheless. At all times and in every situation, you and your child are worshiping. At all times and in every situation, you are transacting with the God who made you. You're being confronted with the distorting voices of the serpent. And you are making quick choices as to whether or not you are going to serve the true and living God in that moment or you are going to chase after what one author calls a God replacement. So, in the moment in the family, home, in the house, where there's a dispute, you're, you're serving dinner and you put portions out there. And if you have more than one child, portions can create a dispute. Why does he get more than me? Or what? just fill in the blank. It could be any number of things. 
Now, you can be sick of all of the questions that your kids have been asking that day. And so you are faced with a moment of worship. Am I going to honor God in this moment when I answer that question? Or is this the straw that broke the camel's back in which I'm going to go after a God replacement, namely peace and quiet? And here's how I'm going to seize peace and quiet. I have a big spoon in my hand that I dished out those mashed potatoes with. And I say to you, if anyone says another word while dinner's going on, they're going to get it. Well, who's been worshipped there? God? I'm worshipping my own selfish desires for something good. Peace and quiet. Or that child. If I tell the child, eat the food that's placed before you. And the child continues to say, it's not fair. The child is worshiping as well, right? Now, you see people worshiping like this all the time. When you're in the grocery line and you're going through the checkout, that kid who is eye level with Pez and who in that moment has created an idol out of that Pez dispenser, In that moment, the most important thing to that child in the universe is to have a Pez dispenser. And so they ask you for the Pez dispenser. And you say, yeah, I like Pez. (laughs) You say, no. Well, that's, that's the fatal word, isn't it, in public? Because the child knows, I've got power. I've got power over you because you get embarrassed when I yell and scream. So I yell and scream. I might even throw my little body down on the floor. Now there's worship going on for that kid. That kid is worshiping his own desire for control rather than worshiping the God who gave him parents to help him and who he's supposed to obey. And then you've got to make a decision. What's most important to me? My reputation amongst all these strangers in the line? Or to teach my child? As God instructs, every moment of every day, in every incident, you and your child are transacting with God. You are worshiping. And you are either worshiping the true and living God or you are worshiping a God replacement. The family is intended by God to be his primary learning community. It's also intended to be, secondly, in your notes, a sociological community. The family is where you learn about your relationship to other people. I learn about my relationship, for instance, to authority first, where? In the home. And so one of the things we're going to look at as we start to lay out a plan to raise our kids is when they're ages zero to six, that's prime time to teach kids about authority in the home, prime time. Now, if you haven't done it by the time they're, they're seven, all hope is not lost, but that's prime time. The first place they learn about issues like authority in the home, authority is in the home. And our kids initially react well to authority, don't they? He said, tongue-in-cheek. Most children don't react well to authority, including yours. People look at our girls. Our girls are not perfect. There is no perfect, obviously. State the obvious. But our girls know when I tell them to do something or their mother tells them to do something, they know that they have to do it. And if we tell them to be quiet, they have to be quiet. And if I'm talking to another adult... They don't interrupt. 
They come. They stand there. We've got a signal. You put your hand on me if you need my attention. When I've got a break in the conversation, I'll go to you. But we started teaching them that from minute one. You don't, they don't naturally react well to that. They didn't naturally react well to it when we started. As a matter of fact, they tested us and tested us and tested us. And we had to constantly remind them that we are God's instruments in your life for good and we are his authority in your life in this home. And it took a long time to teach them that. Now, people look at it then and they say, boy, I would love to have compliant kids like yours. But I'm telling you, the kid, our kids aren't compliant naturally. They have to be taught that. Because as sinners, we rebel. We take the John Mellencamp approach. In the words of that great theologian, I fight authority, and authority always wins. But nobody really stops to ask, why do I fight authority? Why do I keep fighting authority? Why do I keep beating my head against this wall? Well, the Bible has an answer. It's because sin makes us stupid. And we keep doing this. And so, friends, our children are in this sociological community where they learn about themselves, and they learn that about themselves, and they learn it very early on. And you teach them about issues like submission and authority. They learn about siblings and about other kids. And they learn that very early that they, your child, does not want anybody else getting in his or her way. The first word they learn in this sociological community that is the family is after dada, mama. Okay, and after that, <laughs> good, mine. If I want it, it's mine. If I ever thought about having it, it's mine. And you did not have to teach your child that, did you? You look at it and you go, where did they get that? And the only thing you can conclude is from your spouse. In fact, I just had a new parent who shall remain nameless tell me before we started that his three-week-old is starting to exhibit some rebellious tendencies. And he is certain that she got that from her mother. But here's where they got it. That guy in the garden had kids. Adam had kids. I'm one of them. You're one of them. And our kids are part of that as well. We learn to rebel. We are selfish. Selfish. Naturally. We don't have to be taught any of that. Now, here's the kicker. I don't have to be taught sin, but I do have to be taught righteousness. I don't have to be taught what's wrong, but I do have to be taught what's right. So this has made it, the entrance of sin has made it extremely difficult. Kids will learn wrong naturally. But contrary to what many say and what perhaps some of you think, kids do not learn right naturally. And so what do we do? We have this kind of thing going on in this sociological community all the time. What do I need to be teaching our kids when we see these sinful interactions going on between them? That brings me to the third thing. The family's intended to be a redemptive community. Because lots of sin takes place in the family. And what is redemption? Redemption is making right what is wrong. And in the context of family life is revealed that there is stuff wrong with our hearts and with our children's hearts that needs to be redeemed. It needs to be made right. And so our homes have to be places where redemption then is spoken. 
Because there's sin taking place all the time. And so words like forgiveness are, spoke, are supposed to be spoken in our home. Because you sin against your kids. And we sin against our spouses. And we sin against our children and they against us. And so that going on all the time means that this needs to be a place where forgiveness is spoken. Now, if you were to put a speaker in our home on any given week, you will hear confession and repentance going on regularly. And it's not a monastery where we say, okay, it's confession and repentance time. This is just happening through the natural flow of the, the week. And so Lainey snaps at Annie. She knows what she's supposed to do. She's supposed to ask Annie to forgive her. Annie, forgive me for speaking unkindly to you. And Annie is to say, I forgive you. And when I do that to my wife, they need to see me say the same thing to her. And the zillions of times she does it to me, Lord knows. I'm kidding. They need to see her do it to me. It goes all ways. And so that's the kind of thing that you and I need to be engaged in in our homes. It's a sociological, educational community. It's a sociological community, and it's a redemptive community. That means we speak the language of redemption regularly, which brings us to lesson two. And we will get done what we can from lesson two. Grace spoken here. And so I want to spend some time in this lesson on the issue of how we communicate, how we speak. Because one of the ways our sinful hearts that we got from our father Adam that has distorted things, one of the ways those sinful hearts are manifest, displayed, is through our words, the way we speak. And you, you see it in your home over and over again. And it's manifest in the way you speak, and it's manifest in the way I speak, and the way our kids speak to us and to each other. And so God made us to communicate. And God made us to communicate truth. And God made us to communicate right. And on his behalf and in his image, he made us to do that, as we've already seen. But the way we communicate is screwed up. And the reason it's screwed up is because of sin. And so, if we are going to see the purpose of the family and help our children achieve the purpose for which God has placed them in this family, one of the things we have to do is redeem communication. Redeem the way we talk. And so that's why we have a lesson here called Grace is Spoken Here. And we say for you that, we repeat for you the fact that, Roman numeral one, a family is a sociological community. And because it's a sociological community, a so small society in which we learn about ourselves and learn about each other and interact with, with one another, then it's a place where communication has to take place and will take place but it's going to take place in one of two ways. Either unbiblical communication or biblical communication. So is that what I have for you there? Biblical communication and unbiblical and then biblical? I'm asking. What's listed there? Hey, let me see your notes. Yeah, family is a sociological community. 
And then a family, okay, is a redemptive community. I don't know who wrote these. <laughs> and then page four has improper communication, all right? So a family is a sociological community, as we've seen, but it's also a redemptive community, Roman numeral two. And in carrying out that redemption, our words are extremely important. And so that's what we mean when we talk about first improper ways of communicating in the redemptive community that is the family. And then we'll talk about proper ways of communicating. So let's begin looking at improper ways of communicating. One of them is to communicate in our families outright falsehoods. And we say most of us will not consistently engage in blatant, contrary-to-fact statements. And I'll just finish this one off for today, okay? But the truth is most of us don't engage in blatant, the, you know, it's, it's not raining outside when, in fact, I know it is raining outside. You know, I didn't spend $5 when I know I did spend $5. Okay, most of us don't do that. I mean, we're we certainly capable of that, but that's not the way our false communication normally takes place. However, we can and often do use wording that is patently untrue. These false statements are often made in anger or frustration due to some of the problems that we're going to talk about below. For example, it's almost never true to say, you never. So that's a false statement. I mean, isn't it true that it's almost never true? That you never... You never take the garbage out. So if my wife yells at me and says, you never take the garbage out, if I can produce for her video footage of five years ago, there was a day when I took the garbage out, even though I'm still a schmo through all of that, it's proof that she's not being truthful. Because it's not that I never do that, it's that I don't often do that, and I don't do that enough. And you need to take the garbage out regularly, and that's all true. But don't lie about it when you communicate. Or it's almost never true to say you always. If there's one exception to the never and the always, then those are not true. And so discipline yourself to speak truthfully. Because when we speak in these untrue, undisciplined ways, it is the byproduct of emotional speech, frustration and anger coming out from us rather than considered, conscious, truthful speech. And so you say that's an extreme example, taking the garbage out. Of course it is. But it will be very helpful to you, as it's been very helpful to us, to discipline ourselves to say, we never say you never. And we never say you always. Because words are sacred, God gave us this ability to communicate, and it's a stewardship responsibility before him that we communicate to each other truthfully and accurately. So we don't say things like this either. I'm going to divorce you. Because I'm not going to divorce her. And she's not going to divorce me. So we don't say it. We made a pact at the beginning of our marriage. Divorce will never come out of our mouths. So I, we don't say it kidding. We don't say it. We don't say it. It's too serious. It ain't going to happen. So to say it's going to happen ain't true. Okay? So we don't say to our children, if you disobey me, I am going to hang you up by your ears. You know why? Because we're not going to hang them up by their ears. We tell them what we're going to do. 
You do what I told you to do. You do it the way I told you to do it in the time frame that I told you to do it. Or here are the consequences. And those consequences will surely follow. And we're so committed to this that if we say, I'm going to hang you up by your ears, then we're committed to hanging you up by your ears. That's why we don't say it. Because we want our children to know that the words that come out of our mouths are true words. What we say, we mean. And so we discipline ourselves in that regard. And I encourage you to discipline yourself in that regard as it relates to improper communication and outright falsehood. Now, you can see we've got a number of these to look at, all of which are extremely important as we look at how we use our words in the redemptive community that is the the family. So we will pick it up there next week. Thank you for your kind attention. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we try to implement some of what we have seen this week in our individual lives and in our families, and then we'll be done. Father, we thank you for this all-too-brief time to look at these extremely important issues from your word. But, Lord, we want to thank you for giving us your word, for making us so that we can receive what you say, and we thank you for saying it. And thank you for giving us the book that tells us about what you intend and how you made us and what, what you've equipped us to do, what your intentions are, what has gone wrong, and what your solution to it is. And I pray, Lord, that this week, beginning this week, that in our individual lives as we speak, we will begin implementing the discipline of censoring what we say to make sure that it's absolutely true. That we'll begin thinking about our families as the redemptive community that you've designed them to be. And as parents, to be the leaders in that process of of redemption, making right what is wrong. When a relationship is severed, even momentarily because of an unkind word, help us to begin practicing your solution to that based on the forgiveness that we have ultimately in Jesus Christ. As we start doing that this, this week, even in small ways, may you begin to transform our speech, our attitudes, and our families as a whole. Go with us this week as we seek to serve you. We ask you to grant us safety and to bring us back next week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.